Welcome to the Strength and Success Podcast. This is episode four, which is apparently going to be the untitled episode. It's kind of like Metallica's Black Album, which was their best, let's be honest. So let's hope that this is our best episode ever. With me, as always, is Riley Presnell. Hello. Hello. She does that so much better than I do. Hello. I can't do it. It's just not the same. And uh, we have some questions from the stories we put up, and probably people will drop them live here. You guys are welcome to drop live questions. It's a really cool feature that we do this where people can drop live questions here. We'll answer them. And we have stock questions that people have answered or asked us through our stories. And these get uploaded to your podcast stream every Monday, so you can listen to it in your car if you want to. If you can't make the whole broadcast here, that's cool. I also post them to my page. If you want to listen to them in the background, just put them on play. You're more than welcome to. How are you? I'm doing very well. What did you do today? I deadlifted. What happened on your warm-up sets? I tore my thumb. Did you still hook grip after that? I hook gripped every set after that. Did you cry about it? Nope. Shut up, bitches. <laughs> That's the, the I feel. you chose. Yeah, I, everyone that decides to hook grip, they're like, but my thumbs hurt. And I'm like, well, I don't. <laughs> well, I now don't. your back's going to hurt. You just pulled landscaping duty. I'm saying the court of the day. I, and it's just like, okay, if you want to pull hook grip, like, yeah, it's not going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to be comfortable, but just like. I don't know. I don't know. Just like don't have something. Don't try to find something to complain about. So That's pretty much how I feel. I'm a male, obviously. <laughs> and I'm older, obviously. So what every older male does is he starts to quote The Godfather. But we're going to go to Godfather Part 2 in this one. Arguably the better one. It's pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. Hyman Roth has this great fucking scene where he goes on and on about how he came up. And Mo Green was his partner when they built out Las Vegas. And how Michael Corleone's family killed Mo Green. Shot him through the eye. Awesome scene at the end of Godfather 1. And he says, I didn't ask who gave the order. I understood that this is the business we have chosen. Phenomenal monologue. One of the best scenes in any movie ever. And that's just how I look at powerlifting. This is the business we have chosen. So yeah, your back's going to hurt. Your neck's going to hurt. Your shoulder's going to strain. You're going to pop something here and there. And your thumbs are going to bleed if you chose the hook grip because this is the business we have chosen. Also, we're going to go to the mattresses. That's in one. I know. <laughs> Still you, the Godfather. I feel like you know that because of You've Got Mail. <laughs> no, I have seen The Godfather. I've seen both The Godfather. I've seen all of The Godfathers. But it's definitely more prominent because of You Got Mail. Absolutely. Because it's just funnier in that scene. Yeah. You know, you remember it better. That's true. That is actually a great movie. That's one of the best romantic comedies out there. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Wednesday. <laughs> okay. So... Um, some of the stock questions that we got from the Q&A yesterday. What's up, Pat? Um, Pat joined. Yeah. So after deload, where do you recommend to resume your main lifts? Um, match them off of the week before or another percentage? This is a great question. So the question is, when you're coming off of a deload, where do you put your percentages at or your RPE at, basically? Uh, love your program. Thanks, Scott. So where do you put your percentages or where do you start back after a week of a deload? And this is not a blanket question where you can say, start here. Mm -hmm. It really depends upon what's the intent and what's the focus and how close or far you are from the meat, in my opinion. People will vary that a little bit. So if you've got to a point where you've taken a deload, it's because you've overreached a little bit and you need that step back to allow your body to recover. So if you are in, say, something like a more volume phase, you can start back where you were from the beginning of the first phase, but maybe a little bit higher, something like 2.5 or 5% higher. Mm -hmm. If you're closing in on that deload and it's right before your meat peak, you're probably gonna start in the higher range. So let's say just for hypothetical purposes, given a little bit of example, if we were in more of an off season and I had them deload around 60%, I might start the next block around 65 or 67.5%, mm -hmm. depending on where the other one started, maybe with different movements. If they're really close to a meet, I might only deload them, de them with 70 or 75% for really, really low volumes, so they're not too far off, but that might start right back at 80 or 82.5%, depending on how far from the meet they really are. And in some cases where I've taken, a, you know, if someone needs to deload more 
more frequently, closer to a meet, someone who deloads like every three weeks, they might start right back at like 85% after that deload because they're really close to the meet. Yeah, I like that 70% range for like uh, testing right before like strength or before peaking. Um, so I like that like 70%, like a two by three or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Also, some people utilize a deload as a pivot week to start the block. So from there, you can just start at lower percentages. And like I usually increase by like that 7.5, it's like 10% um, going forward. So I guess it depends on if your deload is at the end of the block or at the beginning of the block also. But yeah, generally I like keep my deload ranges between 60% to 70%, more towards the 70% if they're staying in the strength range or like the peaking phase, but more towards the 60 if they're in like hypertrophy and volume. Yeah, and a deload is not the time to use that variance. I give all my clients a 5% yeah. variance where they can go up or down 5%. Uh, a deload is not that time to take that up 5% because the whole point of the deload is to allow the body and the system to completely recover so you can go get back to hard-ass work. I've so, had lifters do that where they're like, oh, it felt really easy this week, so I added 30 pounds. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you didn't deload. That's gentle because Erica <laughs> was just asking me yesterday things that lifters say to you when they go off program. And I'm like, deload felt too easy, so I added 100 pounds. Like, dumbass, deload was supposed to feel easy. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, I write deload at the top so that way, you know, it's, it's your chance to relax, you know? And, like, I feel like once you get to a certain point where things start to get like really really heavy and you start to get really strong you are like looking forward to those deloads because you're like my body is tired yeah i mean a deload is really recovery and that's the most important aspect and i talk about this at every seminar the most important aspect of a program is to create a stimulus and then allow for adaptation and the deload and the recovery work is the adaptation time and if you're not allowing that you aren't going to progress because you're always going forward and forward and forward and forward forward until your body basically shuts down and i don't mean shut down like you die but something's gonna pop yeah Either your mental or your physical will pop. Uh, next question we got is, what is on the agenda in Lawton? So Lawton, Oklahoma is going to be at um, Depth Before Dishonor Gym. I think it's also called like Southwest. Some, Southwest, Southwest Strength. Something Southwest Gym. I yeah, Depth Before Dishonor Gym. It might be like Southwest Strength. It's actually because it's also a CrossFit gym. I think they have CrossFit classes. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe a little Home Depot, a little Bed Bath & Beyond. Maybe enough time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that'll be... That'll be Trevor and Stacy. so there'll be, like, mindset, programming, Q&A. There's going to be a breakdown of the main three lifts, um, a lift-along at the end as well. I'm going to do a lift-along, and Stacy's probably going to have, like, a breakdance party. <laughs> I can't guarantee that, but I bet you we could talk her into it because she loves to, like, secretly dance to, like, really trashy hip-hop. Loves it. Yeah, we could definitely do that. It could be a twerk-off. Yeah, or a twerk-off. We can get a twerk-off from her. A hoedown showdown. <laughs> Um, another question was how to control a lift without taking it too slow and turning it into a tempo rep. If that's as fast as you can control it, then that's what it is. Like yeah. if you really lack control of a lift, a tempo of some sort is the best way for you to actually learn that lift. And then it doesn't have to be tempo concentric. And unless you're coming back from an injury, it probably should never be tempo concentric because yeah. we're working on rate of force development here as a power lifter, i.e. the term power. But you can absolutely work on slowing the eccentric to gain position and gain control. And if anything, that's going to only help you stimulate muscle mass and muscle size by spending more time under tension. Um, there are some people who drop and drive in their lifts. They're usually a bigger lifter and they have a lot more mass to rebound off of, like the power belly. If you don't have that, chances are by just dropping and driving, you're going to lose position and you're going to lose control. So move the weight only as fast as you can control it. Mm-hmm. Caveat to that is, I don't, we talked about this last episode, we're not looking for perfect. If you're slowing your reps down to make them look as perfect as possible, you're holding back back your absolute strength. 
your your max singles aren't going to look technically proficient all the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they might be ugly, but a PR is a PR. When it comes to the competition day, all I care about is that you got that PR. When it comes to training, we have ideals as far as what form should look like, and we're trying to match that. Yeah. But when you're pushing it, it might break down a little bit. That's how we know it's your actual max. Well, the point of a PR, too, is um, I just had a lifter hit a PR yesterday, and um, she was like, She's like, oh, it's not the prettiest. I'm like, okay, yeah, it's not the prettiest, but that's that's what we have to improve upon now. So, like, that PR is not going to be your PR forever. So now we just, we hit the PR, so now we aim to make it prettier. So it's not always going to be. She loves um, its work. It's not always going to be absolutely perfect every single time, like Trevor said. But um, I find that a lot of, like, narrow-framed lifters want to drop and drive, like, especially in a squat. I don't yeah. know what it is about a squat, but I see a lot of, like, 120-pound girls dropping and driving into a squat. And I'm like, you don't really have a whole lot to rebound off of. And if you can stabilize it, that's totally great. Everyone's going to be way different. Um, I tend to do a little bit better with a little bit faster of a drop with squat because I do rebound off of my quads well. But that's not going to work for someone else who is also 150 pounds if they have a small frame, small waist. So I don't know. I don't necessarily um, think that there's going to be one one size fits all answer for this one. Um, I don't like concentric tempos either. I don't think that those really benefit anyone because you're never going to do that. From a powerlifting perspective, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, it shows you what information people have out there. I remember reading on Teenation, and we're talking years ago when Teenation actually put out decent information from real strength coaches. And this person who had written a strength article for them, you can tell was not an actual strength person who worked with the field he was writing about. And he put a tempo on a power clean. And I looked at that, I'm like, how the fuck do you tempo the concentric of a power clean when it's a power clean? That's like asking someone to jump slow. It's just not mm-hmm. going to happen. And so he literally had like a 2-1-2 two, two tempo on a power clean. I'm like, have you ever done a power clean in your life? It's power. Like you're exploding yeah. and spinning your elbows under. It was the dumbest thing I'd ever seen. And there was the demise and downfall of T-Nation where they would just accept articles from anybody. Yeah. So, you know, mm-hmm. even in your head psychologically, it may feel like you're taking a long time to get down. Like I, I slow down my heavier weights or I think I do. And then I watch a competition video when I'm moving much faster than I think I am. It's because it's heavy. So you become mm-hmm. much more alert, aware, and you feel like you're moving slow to control, but it's probably not as slow as you think it is. Yeah, usually if I write tempos, it's like four two zero. So basically my tempos aren't tempos, they're slow decentrics with a pause. Eccentric tempo. Yeah. yeah. Most of my almost entirely all of my tempo work is eccentric tempo or um, isometric tempos with the pause. Yeah. Um next question. Did you always want to be in the fitness industry or a coach? If not, then what? Um no, I had actually no intentions of being a coach. Like when I started powerlifting, um I've been powerlifting for like I think it's been four and a half years now, maybe four years. I had, like, nothing in my brain was like, you're going to coach one day. Um, I went to school for psychology. I did assistant coach with my aunt um, for volleyball. So, like, I had some actual sports coaching experience. What was your volleyball hype song? Oh, my God. That stupid uh, Remember the Name by Fort Minor. Minor. You have to hear it, like, six times every tournament. (laughs) It was like, so, yeah, when you play volleyball tournaments, there's, like, uh, they can be upwards of like six games a day, depending on if you win or not. And it was, I don't know why that song was always the hype song, but I would hear it probably at least six times a day. And I was like, Jesus, fuck, this song isn't even that good. <laughs> this great. is not getting me hype. And now, now every once in a while, we'll put on like a, a rap workout playlist or something. And Come that song is always on there. And I'm like, please stop haunting me. <laughs> um, but so I like, I did assistant coaching with my aunt for a little while. Um, in like high school and 
yeah, I went to school for psychology. I originally started school with the thought of going for marketing, and then I switched to psychology, which I should have just stuck with marketing uh, realistically. But I had no intentions. I didn't really necessarily want to um, ever own my own practice or anything like that. That was never something that sounded super interesting to me. That was like, that would have been roughly minimum 12 years of schooling um, to even get the qualifications I need to open up my own practice to be a therapist. And that just, the the reward, the risk reward for that didn't uh, pan out very well for me. So I had no idea what I wanted to do with a psychology degree. Um, and then when I started powerlifting, I was like, this is just really fun. Like I really, really enjoy being strong. And then as I kept going on, I really enjoyed understanding like the why behind things um, and why I was doing certain things and why they were working for me and not working for other people or like why we would do a certain movement or how these variations would help, why programming being set up a specific way is beneficial to people. So I would ask questions to like my coach at the time or other people that were around me that I was lifting with. Um, and it just really became interesting to me and I feel like I picked up on it relatively quickly um, and I like to communicate, so coaching seemed pretty natural to me. Ironically, the person who asked this question, Angel, the future man on there, just joined the, the podcast, and he had asked that if I'd always wanted to coach, and it, it's an interesting question because probably the number one field that people are in who powerlift or somehow in the fitness field, whether they're trainers, they own a gym, or they do nutrition consulting online as like a side job, or strength coaching as a side job of some kind, so there's so many people within that fitness space and fitness field and uh, that's why they are like constantly DM me for coaching in everyone's bio and Instagram. So it's very, very common. When I started, it wasn't actually my intention. I was going to school, like I mentioned on other podcasts, for physical therapy. That was my track I was going to do. I started working at the gym, and I didn't think I was qualified to work as a trainer, despite what I knew. I had what was we now know as uh, imposter syndrome. That was before it was even termed. So we're talking back in from 1998 to 2001. I it became started. a term in 1984, actually. Oh, so before my time, but we didn't know about it. <laughs> but... Um, See the psychology degree kicking in there. <laughs> so that's what I was very guilty of because everyone said, you should be a trainer, you should do this. And I started working in the gym because I had a degree in massage therapy at the time. I had my associate in structural body work and I started working in the gym and the fitness manager kept looking at me like, the massage department's dead, do you want to be a trainer? I'm like, no. And after like sitting there for five months on my ass doing almost nothing every day, he's like, just take our entry test and see what you got. And so I took the entry test and uh, he's like, okay, we're switching to the training department. I was like, all right. So they had a certification, which was actually through the National Academy of Sports Medicine. So my first training certification was the NASM certification. And they sent me to a class that was a week long. It was like 29 people, and I was the only one in the room who wasn't actually a trainer at the time. And they go through this whole class, and you take the test at the end of the class, and it's like 150 multiple-choice questions. And I got up in like 15 minutes, and I went to the desk. He's like, oh, do you have a question? I'm like, no, I'm done. And he's like, what? I'm like, I'm done. And he goes, oh, you can leave. We'll let you know your results. I'm like, okay, cool. And <laughs> so I've been starting coaching people since then. Um, the amount of knowledge I actually had really exceeded what most trainers actually had at the time because I was in school for physical therapy and the whole nine. And uh, that's like a humble brag. I didn't mean to be that, but that's what it was. Like most of the trainers, they were getting American College of Sports Medicine or you know NASA or A certifications. They're very simple. They're very basic. And I had a lot more anatomy and physiology than they had at the time. So the questions were super easy. I understood planes of motion. And I understood what the National Academy of Sports Medicine was trying to do, which is bridge that gap from physical therapy. Because you started hearing terms like reciprocal inhibition and synergistic dominance, which most people in their world don't know what those actually are. But in my world, we do know what that is. And it's very, very helpful to know what that is. So I started training people, and training just took off, and then it became something I was doing 60 hours a week, and then 70 hours a week, and then 80 hours a week, and then I opened a studio, and I opened a studio, and I got tired of cleaning up other people's piss, and taking out the trash for other people, and being married to it seven days a week, 
and people started asking me for help with programming or nutrition, and I started doing that online, and that grew to a point where I no longer needed the studio. So I let go of the studio, kept a couple clients, and then when I moved away, I got rid of all the clients because I moved away, and my online was 100% what I was doing. It wasn't actually my idea, track, or choice. I thought I didn't know enough. I totally had imposter syndrome, but I got to a point where word got out about the results I was getting that more and more people kept seeking, searching for help, and it became my full-time job. Which I don't even think it's a job. I still think it's just so fun and great to help yeah. people and gratifying to do it. So I get paid to do it, but I don't see the responsibility of it as a job, even though I refer to it as work. Yeah, I feel like the word job is definitely um, not accurate for what it is. Don't worry, no one's asked any questions. I'm looking, just making sure, because I was talking. <laughs> um, I don't want to miss anything. You guys can ask questions if you want. Um, yeah, I don't think that. I think don't think the job is an accurate word for it. I still don't feel like I know enough. Um, Serious questions: Are you guys dating? We have been for a pretty good while. Yeah. This no. Is <laughs> I just got dumped. Live. <laughs> I, actually, that was a uh, Riley. I asked a question. Now you did. Um, did you ask that just to ask a question? It's actually funny because I think like three to four months ago, I did a I did a like one of those Q and A's where it was like make an assumption about me. And someone was like, I assume that you and Trevor are dating. And I'm like, where have you, have you been living under a rock? Like, I feel like that's pretty, uh, that's pretty open of a thing. So it was just interesting to me where I was like, oh, people, I guess, really don't pay attention to you as much as you think they do. Cutest couple ever. Thanks, Angel. <laughs> Peanut butter and chocolate is actually the cutest couple ever. I'm not going to lie. Reese's has got that. Better. They do beat us, especially yeah. the Reese's with the that pretzels facetious. in it. That's actually where the uh, the pickup lines came from because people would leave like random weird comments on Riley's videos or whatever, like hard eyes on mine. So we started doing like the really cheesy pickup lines for fun, which I think we're going strong in like four weeks now. Well, I just think they're fun anyways because I like to I like to flirt and I don't ever feel like I want that's something that I want to lose in a relationship. So... I'm always down for the for the flirting, the flirtationship, personally. So you just invited everyone to flirt with you? Oh, no. no <laughs> I don't want anyone else to talk to me, realistically. I personally don't like when people talk to me. I get weird about posting things because I'm like, what if, what if a dude comments on this and makes a weird pass at me? I'm going to feel really uncomfortable. Like, if I post anything from an angle that shows, like, too much butt... I get really like self-conscious and I'm like, okay, well that's not respectful to Trevor, so I'm not going to post that. That's just how I think though. Meanwhile, I'm in my underwear flopping around. Yeah, so the respect level is totally different. I'm sorry. <laughs> you deserve better. Um, okay, one of the other questions. About three months since I threw my back out and now the slightest discomfort scares me. Advice? Oh, great question. So I've had significant injuries in all of my time competing, which exceeds 15 years and 28 years of training history. And you are going to have moments of self-doubt. What you need to do is spend more time in that precarious position. That doesn't mean spend more time with heavy loads in that precarious position, but spend more time there. One of the big things I would do when I would hurt myself is increase the reps or increase the time under tension with like tempos or pause squats specifically so my body knew I was safe. I wasn't trying to be explosive or fast right away out of the hole because obviously that was you know not ready yet. I tried to build tissue resilience. And once you feel comfortable that the tissue resilience is there, the mental aspect will follow. Because it's always going to be scary, Riley reminded of that. If you're waiting for this to not be scary, you're going to be waiting a long time. Because the stronger we get, the bigger that number gets, the more intimidated we're going to be by it. And if you approach it like, I've done everything possible prepared, great to lift this load, I deserve this load, I'm gonna lift it, that mental aspect will follow the physical. Yep. So just do everything you physically can to improve that position, that pattern, and that tissue tolerance, and the mental will follow. 
Yeah, I had I had a similar question that I actually did answer on my Q&A that said tips on getting back into squatting after knee injuries. And that's basically the same thing that I mentioned for that girl specifically um, was that you have to build up tissue tolerance. So you have to keep you kind of have to do the movement that scares you the most in order to get back to that. Like she's talking that girl was talking about squatting specifically. And I'm like, OK, you can't really necessarily rebuild your squat strength if you're never squatting like you right. can you can build up the muscles. Um, around it, you can build up your quads, you can build up your hamstrings, you can build up all these things, but your specific squat, you cannot build up if you're not squatting. So, you know, like with, with the throwing out your back, if that's a deadlift or a squat that that happened on, you're going to have to eventually do those things and just take it slow. You do have to be patient with it. Like I've watched, um, Trevor post adductor, pec tear, lat tear, uh, all of these things. And it's basically just a slow process of him getting into the gym um, you know, loading a deadlift or a squat bar and getting as far as he feels like he can comfortably without compromising the muscle again. So that may have only been working up to a 135 pound deadlift that day or mm-hmm. something, you know, and he'll say, okay, I did some, I did some reps. I did some volume here. So that gives me my work for the day, but he doesn't push it because pushing it too fast is just going to give you, put you in the same problem that you were initially when you had to stop lifting. So it's a very slow process and it's filled with a lot of fear. Um, I mean, I still see Trevor get kind of nervous to get under a squat bar when it gets to like past a certain load. Um, it gets past 27 pounds. It's <laughs> my breaking point. Basically that warm up set with the bar is so scary. Um, but you know, I've seen him, I've seen him do that. And if you go into a movement with fear, I feel like you're more likely to do something bad than if you go into it. Like Trevor said, I've done everything that I can to build up my strength in this position to get back to where I was. So patience is kind of uh, your virtue here. For the entirety of the sport, Mm -hmm. beyond even injuries, this is a sport that you don't know how strong you really are or how strong you can get ever. Yeah. The longer you can stay healthy and do things right and keep going, the stronger you're going to be. The limit is is mental more than it is physical. 100%. People break these insane records all the freaking time. And you can just see that a lot of them have put a lot of time in people like, well, this guy's only been powerlifting for four years. Like, no, that dude's been lifting for 12. He was, a, you know, a high school football player and a collegiate football player. And now he's in powerlifting after football is over. He's been lifting for 12 years. And you probably been lifting for two and you're comparing yourself to that. It's like, well, he did it in four years of powerlifting. So I should be able to do it in four years of powerlifting. Were you lifting the eight years before that like he was? And that's what yeah. people understand. This is a very long-term sport. Mm-hmm. He learned how to power lift in the last four years. Or even, yeah, he learned but how he to power lift. he was lifting for yeah. eight. Yeah, and he already had a base of strength built. Mm-hmm. Granted, you know, like football players are always strong, but they have to learn how, like if they're coming to powerlifting, they're going to have to learn how to, you know, squat to depth and like do the movements that we have, but they are already so fucking strong that like their warm-up weight may be your max rep just because they're already strong. Somewhere someone's warming up with your max. Always. And his yeah. name is Dan Bell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dan Bell squatted my total, so that's... Yeah. Great for me. Wild. <laughs> um, so yeah, patience is a virtue with that question. Uh, next question was, front squats are so awkward and uncomfortable. I always feel like I'm not doing it right. Any tips? Um, if they're awkward, you probably should do them more. I feel like this is one of those things where um, you have to do the movement for them not to become weird. Like front squats are kind of awkward. Uh, I guess it depends on if you're front racking, if you're doing the zombie, if you're using an SSB, whatever you're doing. Um, But they are uncomfortable. It is a barbell sitting on your fucking collarbone. Like it is just an uncomfortable movement. 
if you don't feel like you're good at something, it probably means that you need to do it more. So if a lift is uncomfortable or you're not very good at it, um, I would recommend doing more of more it. More of it. Yeah. And just making it part of your warm-up if you need to. If you've got back squats in the day, take a couple warm sets as front squats because you're going to prime thoracic extension. You're going to prime into your core activation. And chances are that you just don't get into that position often enough that your mobility for it probably is suspect. So by doing it more often, even if it's just warm-up sets, you're going to improve the pattern. You're going to improve the positioning, your comfort level with it, and your warm-up. Same with hook grip. You know, hook grip's super uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it. It never stops hurting. Front squats on my collarbone never stop hurting. We were just talking before this, how front squats turn her collarbone into dust. Yeah, it's like right, like when I front rack, right where that good like little divot in my shoulder is right in line with my collarbone. And I was like, so I either have to take a lower position to get it like slightly below my collarbone or or I just let it disintegrate my collarbones uh, into total dust and do it anyways. And it's in a better position. So I just choose to disintegrate my collarbones into dust because I don't need those. They'll grow back. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need those. Skin grows back, bone grows back, you're fine. Yeah, so I think frequency with movements that you're not very good at is probably the key. best way to get better frequency at Frequency with movements that you're not very good at is key. You don't always have to load them 100%. You can just be improving your patterns and your position because practice makes perfect. Yeah. Or perfect practice makes perfect, but nonetheless. Uh, do you want to answer the question that has nothing to do with... Um, fitness and oh my god i'll speak forever if we if we answer this question somebody asked in the q a how do i buy a house oh bear with me <laughs> um first and foremost there's two types of loans you're going to get uh there's a if you're putting more than 20 20 percent or more down you're going to get a different type of loan if you're putting less than 20 percent down you have to get what's called the pmi mortgage which is which is um mortgage insurance so that's private mortgage insurance. That's an insurance policy that you'll be able to pay the rest of it if you don't. So you're paying a monthly fee on insurance for that. So there's a bank that's like putting up collateral. If you don't, if it goes in the foreclosure, the whole nine. So ideally, I'm gonna make this as simple as possible. Ideally, if you're going to buy a house, make sure you have at least 20% down, unless it's like an investment property or you own your own house. You don't care because the mortgage that somebody else is paying is covering that private mortgage insurance. So for your first house, get 20% down. Uh, right now, the housing market has grown 12% in one year, which is like a record. It's never grown that much just much before. Normally, it averages two to 3% increase over time and it's basically done an entire three to four year cycle in one year so any house you're buying now you can expect the real estate market to crash so unless you plan on having that house for seven to eight years where you can come out even with that you're gonna lose money on it so if you're buying a house right now you definitely want to have the 20% down not be under on the mortgage because then you'll be upside down on the mortgage when the value of the house is gonna be worth worth less than what you paid for it so 20% down minimum make sure you plan to live in there for seven eight years so it bounces out even when you do go to sell it so you don't lose money on the house because if you buy a house now and it, the market crashes anywhere from like 20 to 30 percent real estate values and you sell it in five years and the market's already so escalated up there you're going to be losing somewhere between 10 20 30 or depending on the price of the house 40 50 000. so don't buy a house unless you have 20 percent down right now make sure you plan to stay in there for seven eight years and buy in developing areas not in developed areas because you're going to get more for your dollar uh, then it's gonna go farther there because you're buying a development and if you can afford it and you have the 20% down Building a house instead of buying a house is actually going to be cheaper and then you can build it the way you want it And then things are going to last 20 years in that house like the roof the AC unit the whole nine as long as you maintain them annually Get your gutters cleaned and clean your AC every year Those are gonna last 20 years and that's gonna benefit you much more It's going to save you in the long run and not having the PMI insurance is going to save you tremendously as well Because that could be like an extra hundred to two hundred a month that you want to pay and compound that over a 30-year mortgage That's a lot of freaking money I'm pretty sure that only took you three minutes. That was so the condensed version. <laughs> I'm like, I can go into like house hacking, have a roommate to pay like half your mortgage to come off. That's not what they asked though. So we, we can stick to what, what the question that was asked. So I feel like that was a sufficient answer. I do not want to spend any more time on that one. <laughs> 
Um, oh, and make sure the garage is big enough for your accessory room. <laughs> or make sure you turn your living room into your accessory room. Yeah, my living room is overflowing with gym equipment because the garage went out of room. So the next house is going to have a three-car garage. Um, okay. One question that we talked about uh, while lifting that we thought was important to address was... They asked me why I go back and forth between mixed grip and hook grip. That's a great question. And, and it's interesting that people mm-hmm. actually notice that you go back and forth between hook grip and mixed grip. What do you hook grip? Um, I hook grip sumo. What do you mix grip? Conventional. Wh- exclusively. Why? Um, with sumo, for me personally, I feel like in that position, it is easier for me to hook grip because I can get much, much taller. I can keep the bar much tighter into my body and um, really drive my thoracic extension and packing my lats down. With conventional, the mixed grip is a little bit easier for me um, to keep my lats packed down also because I have a pretty forward knee travel um, conventional. Like I use a lot of quad drive, my knees travel forward over the bar, and it's easier for me to keep my lats and thoracic extension um, with mixed grip. And I have tried, we actually tried sumo mixed grip because we thought maybe it would be able to keep the bar tighter to me because I was having this problem where the bar would roll away when I would go to set um, my hips. So we were like, okay, let's try uh, mixed grip since that's what you do conventional pretty well. And it, Mm -hmm. it went poorly. It was awful. Like the worst, it just felt so foreign and not good. And I tried it for like a good consistent couple of weeks and it just was making things worse. Everything was rolling away more. And when I tried a con- uh, hook grip conventional, same thing happens. The barbell rolls away from me more. I can't pack in that same position um, as I do. So I switch and do both. I feel like that is um, something that oh, I can totally ask do. Oh, questions in here. I didn't even know that. <laughs> oh, there's another one. Any, um, those any, are the same one. Oh, it the, just drops it up. The first one is, is a new one, so you can ask that one. Velocity, okay. Any conceptual or practical insights for implementing velocity work specifically for powerlifting? I literally just did the Travis Mash, Mash Elite Performance podcast. Was that Monday? And today's Wednesday? Yeah, it was they Monday. They all blend together for me. I'm sorry. And we were talking about this a lot. I'm not a huge fan of the velocity recorders because I think you get better at just tracking and measuring your velocity instead of your intent and intensity. I am a huge fan of training with velocity and more specifically compensatory acceleration training, which is why we talked about not tempoing the concentric. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I randomly hit buttons and just pop up and that's what happens, so it's my fault. Um, so compensatory acceleration training is lifting every load with 100% force. So you lift 60% the same way you would lift 100%, which means you're putting 100% velocity into 60%. Once you are at a warmed up level, that's what we should be lifting always as raw power lifters. And that's one of the reasons why speed work doesn't work the same way for raw power lifting as it does for geared power lifting, because we're not overcoming the inertia of a suit. We don't have to just be fast when the suit gives out. We need to be fast from bottom to top. So we should always be training with that level of force and always be training with that level of velocity once you're warmed up. That's why, you know, Stacey always says, how fast are you going to move it? And that's one of the reasons why people talk about, you know, get tight, because the tighter you are, the more stiff you are, and the more force and velocity you can create. The eccentric should be controlled, and then the amortization phase, when you change from eccentric to concentric, should be as fast and as explosive as possible. One of the cues that I really give a lot of people to get out of the hole in the squat is jump. You know, once you're tight, you come down, you know you've hit depth. 
jump out of the hole because that's going to allow you to move at your fastest rate possible. And that's what you should really be focusing on. So we're always lifting with concentric force 100% once we're warmed up, you know. Some people will do this on bench with the bar. Uh, you see Jeremy Hornster warm up and he'll pop it out like real quick and he'll, his back will literally leave the bench as he's doing this. Mm -hmm. Some people need a little bit more warm up to get there. Like the Lilla Bridges, you start seeing them pop the bar off their back when they're squatting when it's above 60, 70%, all the way up until like 90. And that's just the way it should be. So I'm a big proponent of velocity. I think measuring it is more work and time than necessary. You can look at a video and see if you're moving fast or moving with force or not. It just slows the workout down and I don't think it always shows you the most beneficial information to be going back and forth to a velocity device and measuring and seeing where you're at. And it could also change based off your fatigue level. Um, RPE is actually better, or reps and reserve is actually better than a velocity trainer, in my opinion, for powerlifting. If you're managing the fatigue of a strength and conditioning athlete when you're dealing with like field sports athletes like football, basketball, and you want to manage fatigue and you see velocity drop, cool. End the workout right there, they're fatigued. When it comes to powerlifting, you're going to have to lift on meet day regardless. So you might as well train with that and not worry about how fast or you know the velocity that the machine's recording and just worry about how much intent and power did you personally put into that bar. Because when you're fatigued, it's going to be slower, but that doesn't mean it's time for a deload. So sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. Um, it could be... See, Bridgeford's right on there too. Use the velocity device for a while and I wasn't a fan. It can be misleading information and maybe you're not getting enough volume or stimulus at that point because you've cut the workout because of the velocity. So it's not our only component we're training. Sometimes it's important, sometimes it's not. Checking velocity warm max with auto-regulation like back down volume work. You didn't say for or with on that one, Mongo, so repeat that one. Not just with tracking, projecting velocity to one rep max, but auto-regulation like back down volume. Uh, back down volume can be to the person. I do way better ramping up, and some people do better with a top set and down sets. And like you see that in wave loading, where someone might take a top set, a down set, and then back up a set. But it's gonna it's gonna vary. Like by the way, if you did a wave load that didn't come back up, you didn't actually wave load. You just did a top set. <laughs> I want to put that out there for some people are posting wave loading. It's like heavier, 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 heavier. That's a pyramid. That's not wave loading. Yeah, I think velocity based training gives um, another piece of information for people to give themselves analysis paralysis over as well because they'll probably just throw in the towel if they feel like they're not hitting their projected velocity for yeah, that day yeah. and then instead of just actually having a good training session they're going to be like i was i was so much slower than i should have been projecting uh rather and then they just obsess over it and it's just it's too obsessive for a sport that is like totally subjective and totally daily and like based off of how you feel that day um, based off of how your recovery is going and all that stuff. It's just one more piece of something for people to absolutely obsess over. And I feel like the people that really, really love velocity-based training are also highly neurotic, and they also tend to talk themselves into less weight. Uh, there's the expression, and I'm not going to call anyone out individually, but dumb strong. Mm -hmm. And you see they're worried about less and less about that level of auto-regulation, how periodized their program is, or all that data collection. They're just dumb strong because they're thinking less and less and doing more and more. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you have to put the data away and just put some fucking effort into the bar. Yeah, I agree, 100%. You nailed it, because that's what it creates is analysis paralysis. If you're, like I said, if you're tracking and monitoring 40, 50 athletes and they're working in a periodized model for their sport, makes a tremendous amount of sense so you can see their data because their training is to make them better for the sport. Our training is our sport. You have to understand the difference there. I feel attacked. Sorry, brother. <laughs> I still love you, and I hope you're getting stronger. 
And hopefully I'm taking your neurotic one off your hands. <laughs> Melissa's his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's one of those things where you really can get paralyzed by data and you're gonna end up doing less and less and not more and more. And the way we get stronger is by adapting and doing more, either more load or more work and then taking those deload periods. Yeah, 100% agree. I think it's, um, I think it's a, a useless, not, I guess not useless, but in powerlifting I find it to be pretty useless. Not the ideal, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and it's great if you want to just use it for collecting data and see, but I wouldn't determine my program off of it. You've seen people like, for a while, Kabuki was using it, and they found the same thing. It wasn't working out in the real world, so they stopped using it. Um, I know uh, um, Squats and Science in New York was using it for the USA Builders. They stopped using it. Like It's one of those things that, in theory, sounds phenomenal. In practical application, doesn't work the same. I feel like it would be better for tracking your recovery more than it would be for like improving upon your lifts, yeah. if that makes sense. And you can use so many different things to track recovery that are so yeah. much easier than putting a velocity device on your bar for every single rep of every single set. Like just putting on a fitness tracker or whoop to see your sleep quality. If your sleep quality goes down, if your mood goes down, if your verbiage changes, uh, if your attitude towards training changes, you know your recovery is affected. But to have to hook that up every single time, go back and forth and look at the device and look at the data and be like, God, that's so time consuming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. What else we got? Um, all of the other ones I've answered on my story, so it just oh. depends on if you want to. Yeah, we can go over. By the way, Chris, where's your where's your 19 reps of front squat? I just want to know that. Wyatt, Wyatt joined this podcast, and uh, Diddy Kong Strong there. His goal is to beat me at the showdown meet in the same weight class, and he said he wants to beat me in in my prime, and I told him, sadly, that was three years ago, so it sucks for you that you're going to get slapped by an old relic, like a newborn baby. I'm going to powder your ass. <laughs> Uh, someone asked, are split squats really necessary? No. I'm going to use the word no, but I think they're great and they're very beneficial. The only actual lifts that are necessary are squat, bench, and deadlift because that's our sport. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, everything has something to offer. You know, uh, close grip has something to offer, wide grip has something to offer, Spoto, Larson, um, floor press, incline press, to some degree we've talked about on other podcasts, military press, is it going to carry over your bench? No, but shoulder health maybe or muscle size. So everything has a benefit to a degree, but the only three lifts that are absolutely necessary are squat, bench, and deadlift. And a great example of that is someone like Eric Talmont, when he lifted, he used a Bulgarian-style system with no accessory work, and he set the all-time world record literally just squat, benching, and deadlifting three days a week and would go in there and start at 80% of his max and judge how high he can go from there. His warm-up set was 80% of max, and he trained almost all exclusively singles. Uh, I believe his world record was in the 132 weight class for the squat, so I'm not entirely sure. Very unique and strange individual. He's now living in a monastery in the middle of Europe. He's the one who started the Raw Unity Federation, or the RUM meets, which had everyone take off the gear and see how strong they were with no federation. But it just goes to show you, he literally set an all-time world record with just squat, bench, and deadlift. So any accessory movement isn't a necessity, but there are benefits to it, and what's the benefit you're looking for? Wyatt wants to know what you're buying for dinner. Uh, anything off the dollar menu. Big spender. <laughs> <laughs> you can get like a six piece of chicken nuggets. Nuggies. I do like nuggies. Maybe some fries, small Diet Coke. Front squats, you mean snatch grip. No, sir, I did the snatch grip. You have to do, this is Bridgeford, you have to do the front squats for 19 reps. I, I mean, I don't, I'm not even forcing you to do a real front rack like a proper gentleman. You can cross arm it like a little, like a lady. Never uncrosses her legs. Um, you just have to do 20. <laughs> and if, don't pass if you, out. If you accurately count them, because um, Trevor can't count on, on his own. So. I think Chris would have missed the post yesterday that he was tagging. So go to my page and look at the 19 reps of the front squats. 
what the hell? I didn't sign up for this. Yes, yes, you did. You said it was round one, so I gave you round two. <laughs> Chris, look at him backing out now. What a baby. What a baby. Um, so next question was, conventional deadlifter trying to work on sumo. Do you have any pointers, please? Uh, yes, don't use your back. <laughs> and I say that not facetiously. God damn it. <laughs> I'll do it. All right, Bridgeford's in on the thing. So the biggest mistake that people make when they go to sumo deadlifts is one, they start going too wide with their feet because that's what they see a lot of higher level or advanced lifters use who have the mobility, and they try and start from the floor. Sumo is learning a position of a taller posture and not so much of a bent posture, so you want to use a lot more leg drive and the bar should be very tight and close to you. So if you're gonna transition to sumo, start from blocks. Don't start too wide. Start with a more medium to narrow stance because you probably don't have the mobility. And not only do you not have the mobility, you don't have the ability to create hip torque from that width to actually drive the bar off the floor. That's why most people either hurt their knees or hurt their back. You don't want your sumo to just look like a wide stance conventional. Mm -hmm. The sternum should be upright, you should be taller, and it should basically be pushing the floor away with your legs while you're doing that thoracic extension. If you are loading your low back predominantly on a sumo deadlift, you're doing it very poorly. I won't say wrong, because I've seen some people who actually do that move serious weight, but I'll just say you're doing it poorly. Could inefficiently. Be done, inefficiently, it could be done better. Um, yeah, I usually, I, what I mentioned yesterday when I answered this question on my story was that I usually have a new sumo puller start from blocks, so that way they can learn the position. And then I gradually decrease the blocks until it gets to the floor so that way they can actually feel standing up tall because that's all people want to do is just bend over and reach the bar. Then they have no thoracic, no thoracic extension, their chest is towards the ground, and then that's when you do get that wide stance conventional. So I always recommend starting from blocks and then working your way down. Cue to help teaching wedge hips on sumo versus dropping hips. And that's, that's the big thing is we've put up a video of sit and anchor. So everyone tries to sit and anchor their sumo now that we put that video up and Chris is actually on here so we'll talk about that because it's something Chris wanted to learn because it's something Dan Grigsby does very, very well. Uh, if you are not a very large lifter with a lot of frame, anchoring your sumo probably isn't going to go well. But the caveat to anchoring is yes, it pops the bar off the floor, but it could also pull you forward, which is kind of what it was doing to Chris. And he was loading his low back a lot. He was popping off seven, 750 off the floor, but it was loading his lower back more. We took away that anchor a little bit and talked about a more static position, and he was able to drive through his quads better with a higher hip position. So there's a, a give and a take to sitting and anchoring. It depends upon how mobile your hips are and where you end up. When Dan Grigsby does it, he sits right into that position, but you don't see a smaller level lifter usually do that. They do better with wedging. So uh, everyone talks about it's a deadlift, a pusher pull it's both your lats are going to pull the bar into you your hips are going to push into the bar your sternum is going to pull up and then your legs are going to push the floor away you don't want to do the leg push of the floor away until you've achieved the other three the first three is lats pulling into you hips pushing into the bar sternum pulling back and then your legs push so you have levers going in four different directions basically all at the same time and it takes a little while to learn that like riley said in her post patience is a virtue if you're starting sumo do not try and move the weight fast try and move the weight well. Mm -hmm. Speed up as your technique becomes more ingrained and efficient. Lots of people push their hips away from the barbell. With the sumo, instead of bringing their butt to the bar or rotating their pelvis to the bar, they just push away because that's what they're used to with conventional. Uh, Scott Duolo wants to know, just finished a marathon, experiencing some knee pain, but ambitiously back at lifting advice, I would look to, you just put a lot of pounding on your ankles, your knees, and your hips. Knees are just a hinge, so if you're experiencing pain there, chances are it's coming from the hips or from the, the ankles. So I would just really start focusing on mobilizing the ankles, mobilizing the quads, and mobilizing the hip flexors so they're looser and stretching the glutes because that's what's going to affect your knee. And uh, if you're just starting back into lifting, don't worry about load, worry about form. Mm -hmm. You know, use a higher frequency with moderate loads and work your way back up with volume over time, but I would really address the ankle mobility and the hip mobility. 
another question. What height would you recommend to start with sumo? Like what block height? I usually do two to three inches to start and then I'll decrease to like one and then off the floor. Yeah. So it's just like a slow gradual movement. Some gyms have different blocks, different formats, but about three inches is probably a good place to start and work your way down. If your gyms have mats they can use that are like three-quarter inch, it's perfect because you could just take three-quarters inch away at a time. Uh, that's kind of like how Westside would do its box squats. Like each week they would just lower by a mat if they're working a certain weight for a block. So they might do like a four-week phase or something. And then it might have four mats on the box and it might have three mats on the box and two mats and one mats and so forth all the way down. It is a great way to do that. I feel like if you start at like four and then you decrease it to the floor, you totally miss the point of like gradually uh, putting yourself into the position. Go ahead. Chris. No, no, go ahead. You know, I just read the question. I wasn't going to talk. I just read the question. I was not. I was just looking at it as it's coming through. Sensitive. Did you finish? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, go ahead. Ask Chris a question. Test. I never finished my uh, my answer from the... Mixed grip, book grip? Yeah. I That's because I randomly saw a red icon and I hit the button. I'm like, what is this? Basically, if I talk fault. longer than 30 seconds, Trevor's like, I've had enough. It's my turn to talk. I feel so like that dating question. He, <laughs> yeah, he, probably, he would probably do better doing a podcast by himself. Oh, my. <laughs> What'd All Chris right. say? I'm afraid to read it now. You just bit my head off. Probably's going to kill you. It's all right. Every man dies. Not every man truly lives. I don't know what the question was. Um, I can't read from this far. Well, that's why I read it before they disappear, before you bite my head off. You can scroll, though. Some are your favorites, for guys, for improving a lifter's hip hinge. Uh, I don't know. I don't really... I don't have an answer now. I'm, I'm too flustered to answer. You go ahead. Flustered. Okay. So, learning how to hip hinge, I love, like, a band pull-through. Because they're just gonna the band if it's between their legs is going to pull the hips back a little bit, then they can squeeze their glutes to come through. The the band pull through is a great way to teach that, as well as the PVC pipe where you're holding it behind the head and behind the back and forcing them to just push their butt back towards the wall or using the wall to you know using the glutes to reach the wall and then pull back in. Uh, I'm not so much a fan of putting a band around the hips so much. I use that for like banded RDLs and banded hip swings because that's that's after somebody already knows how to hip hinge and having them force and engage their glutes. But to actually feel the glutes, you don't want anything on them. You want them to learn how to disassociate their hips back. And so the band pull through or the cable pull through is probably better. And then even just a basic barbell hip thrust, believe it or not, it could be on the floor, just like a floor bridge of learning how to go into this, like a slight posterior tilt and then coming back and slight posterior tilt so they can actually feel that engagement of their hips and their glutes. I do like the cable pull throughs. And the band pull throughs. That's what I have. So we're not flustered anymore? No, we can move forward. <laughs> what do you think about a wide stance good morning? Um, I guess that depends on the intent. Um, I find that, like, for a good morning, specifically for me, I'm looking at, like, low back strength and, like, thoracic extension, upper back strength. So I'm probably going to take my squat stance because like that's personally where I fail in a squat is like my lower back tends to collapse. So personally, I'm probably going to recommend doing a good morning from a squat stance. So that way you can learn that position of like, in case you get to the bottom of the squat and you go to stand up and you're like, oh shit, I've lost all my form. I had to good morning this up because generally we don't good morning our deadlifts up. So I would assume if you're a sumo puller, you don't need to wide stance conventional. So I would probably rather a good morning be from a squat stance to mimic that poor pattern, to like overcome that poor pattern. 
I agree. Uh, wide stands, good mornings, really aren't ideal for anything as they're done with a wide stance, even in sumo, because our idea is to move that weight up the floor with our legs and maybe just finish with the upper back as we're coming through. If you're going to do a wide stance, good morning, there's a great video that Bridgeford has actually put up because Bridgeford of the seated good morning, where he's using an SSB and he's just focused on the thoracic extension. You can sit in a wide stance and do that, so you're practicing the thoracic extension from the wide stance, but I wouldn't do a standing good morning with a wide stance. I'd focus more on the hamstrings, low back, and glutes in the more narrow or squat stance position yeah. as it is yeah um, plus you can mr. Miyagi them with the pipe what, what do you mean it means you can hit them with what pipe the PVC pipe to teach the hip pinch oh yeah yeah we could do that <laughs> um, I think that was all the questions from the from the Q&A from our stories so yeah that's all the Q&A questions I guess that's it for the week and we didn't actually have a success title one here, but we'll see if I'm still alive for episode five since Riley wants to kill me, according to Chris. It'll probably be a solo episode for him. <laughs> all right, more underwear videos for me then. I <laughs> hope you all have a good one.